Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSVN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. This is the last podcast for the 2022 season, and it is jam-packed with information. We take a quick look back at the hurricane season and look ahead on another timeline that impacts South Florida, maybe not as deadly or disastrous, but can have major consequences. Uh, This dry season or winter coming up uh, will be the third winter in a row in which we've been in the La Nina pattern. It's it's only occurred two other times in the last uh, 70 years where we've had three consecutive La Nina winters. Meteorologist Erica Delgado brings us the story. Plus, we eat fish from it, we snorkel, dive, and swim in it. But Biscayne Bay is hurting. All of these different conditions, along with nutrient pollution, just shows that our bay isn't as resilient as it used to be. Meteorologist Jackson Dill gives us the diagnosis that's coming up on whether or not. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. Dry season is here and it can have serious implications for all of us in South Florida, especially if we trend drier than average. Erica Delgado explains. The 2022 hurricane season started off quiet, but then the months of September and October became active for Florida, with Hurricane Ian devastating the southwest coast of Florida. Then Hurricane Nicole made landfall on the central east coast of the state for a late in the season landfall in early November. Both systems just barely sparing the southeast coast of Florida, but not without days of worry for South Floridians. But now with hurricane season finally coming to an end, South Florida can finally take a breather as the unofficial quiet season, or as we know it, the dry season, has finally begun. It's a season where many from around the country flock to South Florida to enjoy the pleasant months from where Florida gets its nickname, the Sunshine State. So what can we expect in the months to come? Well, joining me today is Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the National Weather Service here in Miami and Sevens Weather Not Contributor, Robert Moyeda, to give us a little sneak peek as to what we can expect for the 2022-2023 dry season. Hi, Robert. Hi, Erica. How are you doing? And thanks for having me once again. Oh, thanks again for joining us. So I know we've been over this before, but I think it's a nice refresher for everyone listening to go over what exactly El Nino and La Nina are again. Yeah, El Nino and La Nina basically are two parts of what we call the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So this oscillation refers to uh, changes in the water temperatures over the equatorial Pacific Ocean. And these these oscillations or changes in those water temperatures occur on a cyclical, in a cyclical manner. Let's say about every, on average, again, this is an average, it's not like it's gonna be clockwork. Uh, every three to seven years on average, the, the, the pattern of, of sea surface temperatures 
changes from warm to cool, cool to warm, you know, this, 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 these changes in the sea surface temperatures are, are caused in part by changes in the winds, in those trade winds that blow over the equatorial Pacific Ocean. Uh, as the trade winds get a little bit stronger than normal, it, it, it makes the waters cooler in the eastern Pacific Ocean, which is what we call the La Nina pattern. And when the trade winds blow or are not blowing as strong as normal, in the eastern Pacific Ocean, then the waters in that area get warmer. So we're talking the waters that are like basically between South America and Hawaii, roughly speaking. So when those waters get warmer than normal out there, that's the El Nino pattern. So basically, so, so La Nina is cooler than normal waters in the eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean. La, El Nino is warmer than normal. So the changes in those sea surface temperatures influence the location of the weather patterns, you know, that we see every day. So where, for example, you know, we, you know, we have, there, there are high pressure systems or low pressure systems, uh, and these high and low pressure systems oscillate or they move around, they change in, in, in location, they get stronger, they get weaker. It's kind of like, you know, think of it kind of like as a, as a stream or a river, you know, there's, you know, the, the water doesn't flow evenly, you know, especially if there's like rocks or things, you know, kind of like in, in, in that stream or river, you know, it's going to influence the motion or the, you know, the, the movement of that fluid. So the, the, the atmosphere is not a lot different. There, there are things that, you know, features in the atmosphere that make the, the weather systems uh, or make the winds move in a certain directions. So that's basically what defines these high and low pressure areas. So the location of these high and low pressure areas can be influenced by changes in the sea surface, sea surface temperatures below. I mean, so there is a connection between the ocean uh, and the atmosphere. So how these high and low pressure areas shift or are modified based on these changes in the sea surface temperatures, they influence, basically influence weather patterns, uh, not just in the Pacific Ocean, they actually influence weather patterns worldwide. Since, you know, all, you know, the, the winds and the weather patterns across the globe are all connected. It's all part of a, the same system. So if there's changes in one area, it's gonna influence or cause changes in you know, downstream and in other areas of the world. So it's kind of in a nutshell, what El Nino and La Nina are. So I guess it's, it's, it's good for everyone at home to know that, you know, water temperatures on one side of the world or on another ocean will play a role as far as forecasts in other parts of, of the world. Right, right. Okay, so then going into the start of the dry season, would you say we are currently in La Nina pattern or in La, La Nina? Well, yeah, well, no, we, we're, we're, we're in a La Nina pattern. And actually this, this, uh, this dry season or winter coming up, uh, will be the third winter in a row in which we've been in the La Nina pattern. It's actually, it's only occurred two other times in the last uh, 70 years where we've had three consecutive La Nina winters. Uh, typically we see one or sometimes we'll see two uh, in a row and then, you know, we'll, we'll either go to a neutral pattern or we'll maybe we'll, we'll switch to the other, to the opposite. But this been, this is the third or the start of the third consecutive winter of La Nina, which is something we did that's only, again, it's only happened twice uh, since 1950. Now, is there anything that's indicating, you know, now that we have had the third consecutive uh, winter with La Nina, 
Is there anything that's indicating the return of El Nino for 2023? Well, right now, I mean, it's it's pretty far out in time. So the level of predictability, I would say, is pretty low. Uh, indications are, first of all, indications are that the La Nina will persist for most of the winter, uh, maybe towards uh, once we get to February, March, and April time frame, there's an increased likelihood that the La Nina will start to weaken. So, so in other words, maybe we'll start to get away from La Nina and get more towards kind of a neutral, or in other words, neither, neither La Nina or El Nino, kind of in, in, in between, so to speak. Then beyond that, uh, the odds start to increase a little bit. Maybe, you know, we're talking still no more than 30 or 40% chances at this point that we may go towards El Nino by the time we get the next summer. But again, those probabilities right now are still running about, you know, maybe 30 to 40%. So it's still highly uncertain, you know, where, where we're going to be next summer as far as what, what phase we're going to be in. But, but we do have a higher level of confidence in indicating that at least for most, if not all, of this coming winter will be in the uh, La Nina pattern gradually trending towards neutral once we get to the spring. Okay. And I know we're talking about the upcoming dry season, but because we're talking about possibly neutral or maybe even leaning towards El Nino for, for the next summer, if we were to find ourselves in an El Nino pattern, for next summer, would that have any impact on next year's Atlantic hurricane season? Yeah, well, and, and the hurricane season in the Atlantic Ocean are influenced, at least in part, by what phase of this oscillation we're in. So during La Nina pa patterns, hurricane seasons tend to be more active in the Atlantic Ocean. The opposite is true if we have El Ninos. Is that so? If El Nino, let's say, we, let's say we did switch over to El Nino for next summer, next hurricane season, 2023, that would at least increase the odds of having a less active season in the Atlantic Ocean. But, you know, that, that remains to be seen. But yeah, there is, but there is certainly a pattern uh, or an influence between this oscillation and hurricane season, not just in the Atlantic, but also in, in other uh, tropical cyclone basins across the world. Of course, and I'm sure we would all hope for something like that. Uh, I think we need a break from a busy Atlantic hurricane season, at least for next summer. So let's go back to the dry season. I know that the, the NOAA's winter outlook for the 2022-2023 season was already released. What can South Florida mm -hmm. specifically expect for the upcoming dry season? Yeah. Well, I think uh, at least the outlook is for, at least on average, uh, to be warmer and drier than normal. So again, so this is not just for the three winter months, December, January, February, but these are conditions that we expect that should at least, again, on average, should last uh, through through the, pretty much through the entirety of the dry season, you know, basically through April, the first part of May. Now, this doesn't mean it's gonna be warm and dry every single day. Um, you know, there still is some variability and we'll still have some periods where it will be you know, it's going to will likely be cooler, wetter, or both, you know, so I think, you know, there's a, you know, we have to keep that in mind. These are average conditions over a certain period of time, not what's going to happen every single day. So the reason why, again, and it's not just for Florida, but for really the, the, the southern tier of the country uh, tends to lean towards warmer and drier than normal winters during La Nina is because of the jet stream during La Nina winters typically tends to be a little bit farther to the north and not as strong as 
what we would see during a El Nino period. So in other words, that what that means is that the, the, the episodes or, or, or outbreaks of cold air coming southward from the Arctic regions from Canada don't, at least on average, don't tend to move as far to the south or don't tend to or, or move less frequently far to the south as, as what we would see in other patterns. So in, in La Nina pattern, the cold air tends to stay farther north, like in the northern plains, maybe the northern tier of the United States, with less intrusions of cold air into the south. It doesn't mean they don't happen, but they tend to happen less frequently. So that's that's one of the main factors contributing to the outlook of warmer than normal temperatures. And then when it comes to precipitation, again, if we have less frequent cold fronts, let's say, moving in, into Florida, that gives us less opportunity to have rainfall. You know, most of the rainfall we get during the winter months and during the dry season, most of our rainfall in South Florida comes from fronts, whether they come all the way through or maybe they stall. That's where we get most of our rainfall. So if you have on average, let's say fewer fronts moving into Florida, that would typically translate to less rainfall. So that's again, so that's that's the support behind the outlook of drier than normal uh, or drier than normal conditions for most of the dry season. Now you mentioned during this type of pattern for us here in South Florida, we tend to see the jet stream a little farther north. Now, of course, storm systems would track north of our area instead of coming a little closer. Would you say it's safe to assume that because of that, there would maybe be fewer instances of severe weather outbreaks farther south, like at least for South Florida? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, with 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 yeah with the with, with the storm track typically staying farther to the north. Yeah, that that means that we would have fewer episodes or fewer instances of severe weather. Not it would, you know, may not be zero, uh, there are always you know we always see at least some minor changes to, or, you know, maybe minor short duration changes into that pattern, you know, in an otherwise prevailing condition, you could always have some, some changes in that that last a shorter period of time, which could, you know, lead to, to the opposite of what the prevailing conditions are over a period of time. So yeah, we can still get some, some, you know, at least a couple or a few severe weather episodes, uh, you know, maybe with the, you know, few cases where the, the, the jet stream does get a little bit stronger, it does shift southward. That can happen even in La Nina years. Um, but again, the frequency or the intensity of those typically is less than what it would be maybe, or well, certainly less than what it would be during a, a typical El Nino winter, which is basically the opposite, more stormier, wetter for the South and for Florida. Dry season officially started October 15th, and October seemed to be pretty quiet, and we enjoyed lower humidity and even some beautiful blue skies that are maybe more typical of the winter months here in South Florida. But then in November, we had heavy rain where some areas received over six inches of rain in just two to three days. Is this normal entering the dry season, or do you feel that we're still on track for Noah's forecast of a drier and warmer winter, even though we had these few days just a couple of weeks ago where we had very heavy rain. The, the, the beginning and end of the dry season is really kind of can be very variable or can be highly variable. Uh, you know, it's, you can consider it's kind of like a transitional season regarding or, or a, the, a transitional part of the season where we're transitioning from either from the wet to the dry season or when we're getting out of the dry season in April and May, getting into the wet season there, the, you know, there are, there can be some periods right around that time 
when you know we can go back and forth between you know really dry and then it can get really wet. So the month of November, for example, you know, it is one of those, it can be one of those transitional months where, yeah, we or in the beginning of the dry season, but you know, we can still have some leftovers or some, you know, still some effects lingering from the previous wet season. So for example, here in the month of November in South Florida, well, not, you know, well, we had, we had a, uh, we had a, a hurricane, uh, Nicole, which passed pretty close to us. So that, that gave us some rainfall. Um, so, you know, of course, November still being being the last month of the hurricane season. So, again, that's a good example of kind of like a, is a crossover, right. you know, between the beginning of the dry season. But we still have the hurricane season out there. So, you know, you, you can still have some influence from the tropics, even in the month of November. Also, during the early, I mean, it can happen anytime during the dry season, but it does tend to happen, can happen more in, in the in the early and latter parts is fronts you know, will start to come down, but maybe they don't have enough energy or push behind them to move all the way through the area. So when they, these fronts fall over, over South Florida, during these transitional periods, you can have enhanced rainfall. We saw that also, uh, you know, not too long ago. So yeah, that can happen, uh, especially during the transitional months. But what you know, but once we get deeper into the dry season, then typically more often than not, the La Nina pattern, for example, will settle in, and then we should again have those prevailing uh, conditions of warmer and drier than normal. But we'll see where we end up. You know how it all kind of averages out once we get to the end of the dry season. Okay, so in summary, just a creep recap for us here in South Florida: the dry season calling for a drier and warmer than average winter, at least for South Florida's concern. Of course, it could always be some outside factors, but that's the general forecast as the season in general. Yes, that is correct. So along with that, you know, we, we maybe, you know, we, people are thinking, okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, as far as, you know, how, how is that going to affect me? How is that going to affect, you know, the weather, for example? Well, you know, one one thing that that, that we do look at always, you know, every dry season, but maybe more closely when we're in extended dry periods, which La Nina can bring on, is the increased threat of wildfires and, and, and drought conditions also, especially as we get towards the second half of the dry season, February, March, and April. Uh, we, you know, this rain that we've had, uh, well, it started basically well, back in September with Hurricane Ian, and then we also had here uh, uh, earlier in November with, with Nicole and with these fronts that have come down, that's, you know, that's increased the water levels. So we're starting out the dry season with water levels that are, you know, probably higher than normal for the, for this time of year. So when we do get into extended dry periods, which we expect will happen at some point in the dry season, as the water levels come down, at least, you know, the, you know being that we're starting from relatively high water levels, it gives us a little bit of a, of a buffer, if you will, uh, and hopefully that'll uh, be that'll prevent any significant you know drops in the water levels that, that could get 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 down to critical levels. However, however, that being said, uh, it's normal in every dry season to have at least conditions that are bordering on drought, if not getting into actual drought conditions for at least a period of time, as like I said, later in the dry season. So that, in conjunction, with warmer temperatures as we get towards the spring and summer months can increase the wildfire risk. So that's something that we'll be looking at closely, especially as we get into the second half of the dry season. 
Of course, and all that definitely very important to remember, especially as we head into the middle to end of the dry season. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. As always, your information very informed and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Erica. Appreciate you having me once again and hope everyone has a good and safe dry season. Talk to you soon, Robert. All right, take care, Erica. Thank you. The Seven Weather Team would like to thank the National Weather Service here in Miami and specifically Warning Coordination Meteorologist Robert Molleda for always taking the time to speak with us and for their willingness to lend a helping hand whenever needed. Your ongoing support is very much appreciated. That's all for now from the Seven Weather Team, I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado. Thank you, Erica. Whether or not, we'll be right back with a sobering look at the health of Biscayne Bay. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the Storm Station. Seven News. We take for granted when we look at the beautiful body of water that is our Biscayne Bay. We see its external beauty, but there's a different story under the waves. Here's meteorologist Jackson Dill. A local treasure to South Florida is Biscayne Bay, but in recent years, especially, we have seen fish cull events happen, leading to hundreds to thousands of dead fish. I spoke to Samantha Barkeen from the Miami Waterkeeper to discuss the problem. Samantha, thanks so much for joining us. First, I'd like to ask you, what is the Miami Waterkeeper? What do you do and how does the organization support our environment? Definitely. So Miami Waterkeeper is a local nonprofit with a mission that aims to ensure swimmable, fishable, and drinkable water for all. I am Samantha Barking. I'm the chief of staff at Miami Waterkeeper, and I help support our executive director and waterkeeper, Dr. Rachel Silverstein as well as doing a lot of strategic planning and organization-wide planning as well. As an organization, science is the foundation of all of our work, which informs our policy recommendations and leads to connecting with our community through education. Last month, we saw a significant fish kill event in Biscayne Bay. How significant was this most recent event in October in Biscayne Bay? And do you have any idea of how much marine life was affected? Yeah, so this fish kill took place between October October 18 and the 24th of 2022, and Miami Waterkeeper received over 120 reports, and we found that thousands of dead and dying marine life in Biscayne Bay had washed up on our shores. It's not the largest fish kill that we've observed in the bay, but it is the largest that we've observed since August of 2020. What causes these fish kill events? It's a wonderful question. Uh, so scientists on the water recorded that there was little to no oxygen in parts of the bay. So fish and other marine life were unable to breathe. These low oxygen conditions can be attributed to nutrient pollution. And while nutrients are often considered to be healthy, in abundance, they can be harmful, especially to this game bay, which is pretty sensitive to nutrients. And the four major sources of these nutrient pollutions are fertilizer runoff, leaks from septic tanks, sewage leaks, and stormwater runoff. Now, are there any particular areas of Biscayne Bay that are more suspect to these fish kill events? It seems to me, at least, that they are more common across the northern part of the bay. That's correct. We tend to see these fish kills in the northern area of Biscayne Bay, which has also seen large amounts of seagrass die-off over the years. In some parts of northern bay, we've seen up to 90% of seagrass die-offs. This seems to happen more commonly now in Biscayne Bay in recent years. Have you noticed an uptick in the number of events or increase in the severity of them? Unfortunately, we have seen 
an uptick in fish kills over the years. As I mentioned earlier, August 2020 was the largest reported fish kill in Biscayne Bay. And that one affected over 27,000 fish and other marine life. Since then, we've observed about two fish kills a year in the late summer and early fall, around August and October. And they've all ranged in severity, but this most re recent one being the most severe since the August 2021. There are a variety of factors, and each fish kill has been rather unique, where in some cases, like the one in August of 2020, we were experiencing lots of rain that summer, but it was very, very hot, lots of flow outside of the Little River, and all of these different conditions, along with nutrient pollution, just shows that our bay isn't as resilient as it used to be. And so although it has been in the past, the past 30 years we've experienced in Florida will not be the future 30 years that we experience in Florida, just because of all the nutrient pollution entering the bay. So has there been an increase in nutrient pollution? I don't know exactly what the increase in nutrient is by percentage, but just based on everything that we're seeing in the bay, loss of seagrass, low oxygen events, it's all attributed to this nutrient pollution going on. What can residents do to help improve our bay's water quality and to support the marine life? There is plenty of things that they can do. If there is an active fish kill, I highly recommend keeping your eyes on the water. If you observe dead and dying fish, a report can be made to Miami Waterkeeper on our website at miamiwaterkeeper.org forward slash report. And we can then triage that incident to the appropriate party. And when submitting a report, it's super important to include photos, videos, and exact location and the date of time of these observations. Additionally, just in your day-to-day -day life, I recommend following Miami-Dade County's fertilizer ordinance regulations, which prohibits the use of fertilizers from May 15 to October 31st of every year. And it has other restrictions on other aspects of fertilizer use in the county. Residents can also ensure that their septic tanks are functioning correctly by having them regularly inspected. They can also ensure that they're not tossing things down storm drains like litter or vegetation or other pollution that might appear on our streets. Ultimately, all of this water is leading to Biscayne Bay and, and having that increase. Do you feel hopeful about the situation? I am very hopeful. Uh, at Miami Waterkeeper, we're doing a lot of work towards trying to make public comments uh, with our local commissioners or with the state, as well as just trying to move forward legislation that is for the Bay so we could have these big water winds. So I'm very, very hopeful. I know that the county has been working on something called a reasonable assurance plan, which is essentially a plan that takes a countywide look and approach of how to address these issues going along this game bay. So I'm looking forward to seeing the final version of that plan so we can support it one day. Samantha Barkeen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jackson. This concludes season two of Whether or Not. We'll return at the start of hurricane season 2023 to keep you on top of any tropical system and bring you the latest in weather and science. Until then, we encourage you to peruse our library full of great topics. You'll hear us next year. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.